It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today is Friday. Yay, the end of the week. Thank God. It's Friday, TGIF. Uh, It's the 21st, so we are moving out of the second to the last week of the month almost. And um, hard to believe. Valentine's Day will be here soon. In 2000, the year 2000, Today's special guest, William Peters, was volunteering at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco when he had an extraordinary experience. As he was reading aloud to a patient, he suddenly felt himself floating in midair, completely out of his body. The patient, who was also aloft, looked at him and smiled. The next moment, Peters felt himself return to his body, but the patient never regained consciousness and died. Long whispered about in the hospice and medical communities, these extraordinary moments of final passage are openly discussed and explained in William Peter's book, At Heaven's Door. The book is filled with powerful tales of spouses on departing this earth after decades together and bereaved parents who share their children's entry into the afterlife. And more. William J. Peters is a practicing grief and bereavement therapist. He holds degrees from Harvard's Graduate School of Education and UC Berkeley. He is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project and director of its research initiative. Recognized as a global leader in the field of shared death experience, he has spent decades studying end of life experiences. Well, good morning, William. Welcome to Find Time for Healing. Good morning, Randy. Really good to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. What an interesting topic and what an interesting book at Heaven's Door is. Okay, so many of us, I would say most of us, have heard of near-death experiences, whether whether we believe in them or we don't, we've heard of them. But shared death experiences, that is not such a commonly known phenomenon. So what exactly is that? So a shared death experience, uh, it it occurs when somebody is dying and a caregiver, loved one, and in some cases a bystander reports that they shared in the transition with the dying from this human realm into what is referred to as an afterlife. And that the experiencers say is that they are accompanying or sensing or in some cases even assisting with this transition. Uh, Obviously, when you're using this language, what it assumes is that there is some aspect of the dying that continues beyond this human life into uh, another dimension. And... Universally in our research, 
the term that is used is afterlife. Uh, so the experience is very, very similar to, if not identical in terms of capacity to the near-death experience. And this shouldn't surprise us because it's the same terrain. In other words, when a near-death experiencer, of, of which I've had two, when a near-death, when someone is near death, they leave their body as well and begin a journey to what comes next. Of course, they come back. That's why it's near death. And there's the whole host of uh, features with that. They come back, of course, near death experience. In the shared death experience, the shared death experiencer gets to share in this journey, same journey, same basic terrain from what we can tell, that the dying is going on. But, but well, I should say, similarly to the near death experiencer, the shared death experiencer also reaches a boundary, a boundary at which they realize the dying needs to go on and, and will go on, but they need to return to their human life. And that's also similar in the near-death experience. The near-death experiencers will say that I got to this point, and they said, hey, it's not my time, and I had to go back. You know, different circumstances, but same terrain and same dominant theme, which is journey, journey to a benevolent afterlife. And there are a lot of similar features, which I'm happy to go into. Um, perhaps the, the most or one of the more important ones is this, uh, this light, this luminous light that, of course, is uh, predominant in the near-death experience research. And it is also present, but in slightly different forms, in the shared death experience. Now, in your book, <clears throat> there are situations where people did not actually experience the that um, floating or that ethereal or that light, but they did um, feel it in their bodies in terms of, you know, something that was relatable to the person's death. And it was uncomfortable, <clears throat> but they, they knew, clearly knew that the person had died, right? So that's yeah, another that's, way this happens. Yeah, so great point you're bringing up there. Randy, the, the, what we have identified is four different modes, uh, we call it modes of participation. In other words, ways that people can experience a shared death experience. And the first one, I'll go through them and then I'll go back to the one that you're right. asking about. The first one is Perfect. sensing. Sensing at a distance. Typically, this is you're not at bedside, mm -hmm. but you have all these sensations that feel kind of Someone can be nauseous. Someone can be eerie sense of knowing. You just have this sense of like, ugh, something's going on here. Maybe you'll even feel, um, you know, them come through you. Or you'll see memories of your life with them. But, but you don't know what's happened to them. You're just having this kind of disorienting experience. But it's one of your sense doors is activated to let you know something's going on here. We'll unpack that one a little bit more in a moment. So okay. that's the first mode of participation. The second okay. one is observing or witnessing you know, what we call death-related phenomena. Really what it is is the near-death-related phenomena. There's other phenomena, but that's the main one. So you're – and by the way, these are not mutually exclusive, these modes of participation. You can, you can have a variety of them. But this one has to do with the most common feature in the witnessing uh, and observing phenomena related to death and dying is 
the experiencer, caregiver, loved one, sees the dying in this, along this journey somewhere. Like they see them moving through a beautiful galaxy. They see them, um, they see their life review. They, they actually observe the life review. They see them in a tunnel. They uh, see, the, see the light uh, that, their, that their loved one is moving towards. So imagine the NDE phenomena. They're watching the dying move along this journey, and they're doing that. They're watching, observing, witnessing. So that's the second type of phenomena. The okay. third, uh, excuse me, the second, mo- the second mode of participation. Okay. The third mode of participation is accompanying. The experiencer will say that I actually accompanying my dying along this journey for some phase of it. Often what it looks like is they're just moving along with them. Maybe they're seeing deceased relatives. Maybe they're seeing uh, uh, an, uh, some sort of guide it can be called an angel, beings of light. All of this is what, but they're accompanying him and moving along. They're, and they're communicating. So they'll be kind of like, oh, wow, what a beautiful galaxy. Oh, wow, there's Uncle Fred. Uh, oh, this is, look at that light up there. It looks like we're heading towards that light. All of that is the accompanying. The, the fourth one, mode of participation is assisting or guiding. This is when the experiencer says, I seem to have been called into this experience to assist or help uh, the dying make their transition. So, for example, if you, you, know, if you remember in the, in the book, um, Jean Denny, uh, Jean talks about being called somehow Having closing her eyes, you know, she's actually on a plane. She closes her eyes, and all of a sudden she finds herself with her father. And her father has just died. But her father is confused. And she looks at her father, and she goes, what, what, you know, you, you've died. You know, Dad, you've died. And she goes, what? You know, and it, she, he kind of orients him and says, hey, why don't you turn this way? Why don't you, you know, look over here, mm-hmm. and you'll see that there, you know, that mm-hmm. there's others there that are helping you. And so he does that, and then he orients them towards other family and friends, predeceased, that now help Jean's father progress along his journey, and she watches him go, uh, but she's done her part. She's assisted him. Now, to be clear here, when a lot of these people, and they are people uh, who are shared death experiencers, get called into this role, they'll often say, and we see this in our research, I just found myself there. I didn't even know what I was supposed to be doing there. But when I was there, the knowledge came to me about, oh, geez, my relative has died, and I need to orient them, and all they need to do is, you know, do this, accept this, turn this way. It's usually all about orienting them towards, you know, deceased relatives or guides or the light, and then it all works out pretty quickly. So let's go back to the first one you brought up, Randy, this sensing at a distance. So... This is one, you know, I'll go to, uh, there's a beautiful case in, in my book, uh, Allison. Allison is shopping in uh, an outlet store in Camarillo, California. And she's just there, she's getting ready for a business trip, and she's just picking through uh, clothes and things like that. And all of a sudden, she gets this sense that something's going on with her friend. Uh, and 
And so uh, the book goes into it in more detail. But what she then finds out, she gets a call a little bit later from um, a relative, a, fr- a mutual friend, and says, hey, you know, Wendy just died. Now, the sensory experience for Allison was that she started having these images of her life with Wendy together. That's all she had. She did not witness Wendy in any, you know, afterlife realm of, of sorts. But she, had, she started seeing these images of them together in a certain way or just started thinking about her and, and, and remembering her. So these are the type of sensing that, that, that you can happen. Now, that is the use of – that's a strong sense that we use to exemplify that first type of SDE. Some of them are more vague, like all of a sudden you just feel a, a, a drop in your throat or you get nauseous and you say something terrible has happened. Um, so – they can be quite profound in terms of sensing. So sometimes, um, like in our book, uh, Sarah McCarty, she actually she wakes up in the morning and she feels nauseous, and then she starts throwing up. And her and her husband and her kids say, "Oh my God, Mom, what's going on? You're usually so healthy." She goes, "I have no idea. I feel horrible." She goes, well, "We're taking you to the ER." She goes, "Yeah, let's go." She starts getting ready. And she starts feeling a little bit better. She goes, no, I'm feeling a little bit better. They go, okay. Um, so shit passes, and she goes, my God. I mean, I broke out into a high fever. I was throwing up. I, 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 you know, I felt horrible. I was confused in my mind and headaches, and it's like my body was exploding. An hour later, she gets a call from her sister. She says, I'm, uh, Sarah, I have some really horrible news for you. Um, your niece, Leela, uh, died from an unexpected uh, drug overdose this morning about an hour ago, and she puts it together. Now, this is what we call a sympathetic SDE. This is when you feel the experiences of the person dying, what we think are the experiences of the person dying. You know, we can't know for sure, but we have, you know, a dozen-plus cases out of our 225 that suggest that there's a sympathetic connection between the experience from the person dying and certainly, unfortunately, uh, drug overdoses, uh, cardiac arrest. Uh, mm. These are these are the more common um, features we see. Okay, <clears throat> so the, her niece who was overdosing was going through similar, having similar symptoms, likely having similar symptoms. Yeah, that's what we think. And at first, you have to be really cautious about this. But when you get a dozen of these and you say, oh, my gosh, this is the fourth drug overdose. And in these four cases, well, you start start with the person who's the experiencer. And they said, these are my symptoms. Oh, and then they happened at the same time as my good friend died. Now, it's really important to, to note here. The relationship, if, there's the, if one motif is journey in these uh, of the shared death experience, the second motif is strength of relationship. All, almost all of these happen with relationship, uh, strength involved. That's not to say that there aren't people who can, you know, uh, uh, adepts, as we call them. There are some hospice workers that are adepts that seem to be able to sense into these uh, shared death experiences. They seem to be able to have them more readily because they seem to have an attunement to uh, this space, you know, this transition space. But most of our research comes from unsuspecting people who are just, you know, have a relation that's died and they have this profound experience and they're trying to figure out what the heck happened to them.
Mm-hmm. Had you had, as a hospice volunteer, had you had any other experiences other than this, this one that, you know, in 2000? Yeah, you're referring to the experience I had with Ron when I was at his bedside. Yeah. And he had been unresponsive for a number of days. I had been working with him, visiting with him for a number of weeks, always reading to him stories, even while he was unresponsive, because we as hospice you know, workers know that the hearing is the last sense door to go. So I'm reading to him, and, and you mentioned this in my introduction, but for the viewers, to know that I just popped out of my body spontaneously, and there I was. Ron was right next to me, and he was happy and smiling and basically welcoming me into this space saying, hey, check this out. This is where I've been. So I had that experience. And later, you know, that was early on in my hospice work. And I would have many other experiences, nothing as dramatic and profound as what we call a, that's a pure out-of-body experience, and it's a co-out-of-body experience. What I tended to have with the people I was working with was uh, as they were beginning their their transition, if you will, that kind of act, very active late-stage dying process, like we're talking within, you know, certainly hours, usually minutes, and then through the transition, mm-hmm. I would I would find that the room we were in as we say, the geometry of the room would shift and change. So imagine that the ceiling would get bigger or mm-hmm. um, that the, the, the right angles would get rounded. It's like we went into a different dimension that didn't have the, the materiality, the same dimensions and the same um, quality of this three-dimensional space. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be vaster, more open, and the light would change. All of a sudden, I go, what's going on with the light? Did someone open the blinds? Or you know, uh, but it'd be like sometimes not not painfully blinding, but it'd be like there'd be this light cascading down, and um, my energetic constitution, if you will, would change. My, I would hear a ringing in my he- ears, uh, sometimes a hushing. And I, after a while, I knew, okay, this person's really close to dying. And in my own lay language, I would say I was attuning to this opening in the portal that, that is this, you know, the space between the human dimension and what lies beyond. And, you know, we're energetic beings, so there's something about that that. Uh, other dimension that's coming in that we're now that we're now opening towards that my own soul spirit was orienting towards, and it was disorienting in the human realm. And my vision was a little bit off, and um, and I I would yeah it was it was very consuming to me. So the world of the physical dimension would kind of drop away, and so I would have many of these experiences. I would certainly feel and sense presences as well. And I couldn't, I couldn't identify them per se, but I could feel them, and I could feel the force that was guiding. I often feel a pull on my, on my, uh, you know, my solar plexus area, kind of where I kind of have that sense. That's where my uh, soul spirit, you know, resides, if you will. And it was all very comfortable. In fact, it was sublime. It was, you know, otherworldly. Uh, but those are the experiences I would have, and they would just come on right as we approached death. And then as soon as the person died, things would go back to normal and kind of the, 
this three-dimensional reality would fill back in with all its um, more dense materiality. That's just so cool. Um, you must be highly sensitive. I, I, volunteer, I was a hospice volunteer for five years. Um, I never experienced that. I mean, I'm very familiar with the, the end of life process, the last you know f- few hours of, of, of their life and uh, what that's like. Um, but I've never experienced that. That is just fantastic. So have you ever discovered why some people experience SDEs uh, you know, versus other people? Randy, that is the great mystery in all of this. Um, we're just trying to figure out why some people have them and some don't. And it can be, a, it can quite frankly be an issue of uh, discontent for family members when one person has this absolutely spectacular experience and the other family members may not. Um, I can say from my own experience, I had two near-death experiences. One was a, a skiing accident where I had a high-speed skiing accident where I crushed my spine. I was catapulted out of my body, uh, sailed away from my body into a beautiful universe, had my life reviewed, go through the – so it was a classic SDE at 17 years old. I had never heard of any of this. And I'm in this tunnel feeling blissed out until I see the light, and then I realize I'm dying. And as pleasant as this dimension is, I did not want to die. I had a really strong sense that I had not accomplished what I came to this incarnation to, to achieve or to experience or what have you. So I pled with God. I referred to that source as God, a language I'm still very comfortable with. And I said, I have to go back. You know? And then you know, I was in that beautiful velvety light, literally in it. I mean, at the edge of it. I could tell it was vast. I was just getting into my own section of it, if you will. It wasn't my section. I was just experiencing a part of it that was awesome. And then I all of a sudden felt this pushback on me, and I restarted my journey back. But as I was returning back, I heard a, a voice telepathically say, make something of your life. Well, that really stuck with me. I, I realized that I was giving a second was was being given a second opportunity to kind of get it right, if you will. And it wasn't that I hadn't done much in my life. I think I was just, I, I can't explain all that, why I actually had the experience and all that. But it was clear to me that I had to really focus on living a meaningful life. So I come back. I don't think about that experience at all. I still go through high school. I go through college. But it definitely changed me. Uh, because I found myself in Central and South America doing work with refugees and teaching in very underprivileged areas, which was not the trajectory that I was on because, you know, I grew up in a, you know, went to prep school, grew up in a well-to-do neighborhood, and most of my contemporaries were, you know, pursuing, um, you know, more business, uh, mainstream type things. But I wasn't interested in that. For one, I was in chronic pain from my, my back injury, and my whole world had been turned upside down. And I was looking for to find meaning. I was looking. It's a longer story, but I I felt like if I could be with people who were suffering, I might learn something. I can say that now. All mm-hmm. I knew at the time when I wanted to go work with these people in the mm-hmm. developing world was I want to just be with people mm-hmm. who are are different from mine and where I can might help out in some way. But I had it all backwards. I wasn't really helping them. I was going to figure out how people who deal with 
greater challenges than I had lived with, how they make sense of it, and I learned a lot from those experiences. I would have a second um, uh, near-death experience with a blood imbalance, uh, and uh, it was an idiopathic thrombocytopenia, which is low platelets. I almost died. I was in the ICU for, I think, a couple days. But during that time, I was hovering above my body. I was there for, I would say, on one evening, probably you know, somewhere between two to six hours. And I didn't even, I mean, I was an observing, you know, entity, if you will. I was myself observing, but I wasn't really aware that I was, that I was myself, William, because I was hovering above, and I was just watching behavior, uh, people interact, and all the stuff that's going on in the ICU. I was comfortable, but I didn't have any identification with William. I was just like, a, a, I would say, uh, an observing self without a name or identity. It wasn't until the doctor came in and tapped on this individual uh, in the bed that I looked over and he said, Mr. Peters, Mr. Peters. And I said, oh, my God, that's me. And I went over there. And then I had this question. Well, he's asking me to answer some questions. And I have this question myself. Should I answer him? And if I do, will I be able to answer him? Uh, what will happen to me up here? I kind of like being up here. So I had this moment of like, what, what is all this? You know, but clearly a sense that the deepest aspect of me, William, myself, I realized was not that physical body that was on that bed. It was out here. This this consciousness roving around the the um, tenth floor of Kaiser Oakland ICU area. But I did answer him, and when I did, my sensation went back into my body, and I uh, I filled it back out. My eyes opened, and my vision of that doctor, which had been from above looking at his head but listening to him. I now was looking at him from my bed, looking right up into his eyes and face and what have you. So I share these two NDE experiences with you to answer your question, which is, why do some people have these and why not? I think in my case, I had these experiences, which, which basically birthed in me a familiarity with this terrain that lives just outside an incorporated human experience, an incarnated human experience, and what goes beyond. So when I'm in experiences, as I found out in hospice and in working with others who have died, now many, I have a natural ability and actually I should say tendency to be drawn into that space and, and, to, um, and to go there. And I enjoy it. You know, I, I, it's, uh, it's beautiful. And it's not particularly, it's not hard on my body. It's, I love it. And, and so now, you know, one of the missions of the Shared Crossing Project is to teach people how to have these experiences as, as best we know how. So, and, and we have had some success. I mean, I developed protocols on how to, how to prepare for what we call a conscious, connected, and loving end-of-life experience. I don't go into that in the book. The focus of the book is really to substantiate these experiences and to explain them to people, uh, both the layperson and, of course, healthcare providers and hospice workers in particular have 
really just, you know, the book just came out five days ago, no, three days ago, and the reports from my colleagues in, in End of Life have been, oh, my God, this is so, so helpful. And, I, and I'm grateful that I've had so many experiences. There's, I don't know very many people like me who've had so many of these, um, but those who have had them, really relate to them. And this is research-based. I mean, now, you know, the book is based on 134 deeply analyzed shared death experiences. To date, now, my research team has collected, you know, 225. And, we, and that, when I say we have done more than collected, we have analyzed them and broken them down into uh, typologies so that they're, so they can be useful to people in understanding, you know, the, the deeper features and characteristics of them. Hmm. You know, it seems that um, from talking to people who have had near-death experiences, it's one of the first things I focused on when I started this show, and that was many, many years ago. Um, It seems that once you have one, you tend to be, you you tend to have more. People generally um, are more, more, you know, more easily um, transition that way. So, you know, but I just I just find it interesting, and um, like you were referring to my guest yesterday, um, Nancy Vanison, and Nancy, you know, had several of them, and for Nancy, she was saying that she was called there and basically told, you know, you get to work, you know, we've given you all this information, get to work, and that was the message that she was given. And you say, you know, in your young life that you, you know, were saying, you know, get it together, focus on something, find something. <clears throat> and you wouldn't be doing this work today if you hadn't had this. So obviously this was the goal for your soul to do in this incarnation. So that's kind of what I'm putting together. <clears throat> I, I think you're right, Randy. I think that um, two of the really sage points you've made here is that there is a tendency for those of us who have had near-death experiences to have others. We don't know why that is, but you're right. There is, uh, there, the, the research suggests that near-death experiencers have a tendency towards having more than one. Uh, and I can tell you this, in our research with the shared death experience, 41% of the people we interviewed had more than one. That's striking. That is forty-one percent had more than one, and and I and I have you know I call these people adepts. In other words, they're just they're. I mean, in 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 Greek society, you know, old Greek, classical Greek, these people us would have been called psychopomps, people who know how to you know navigate this boundary between human existence and what lies beyond. You know, more pre-modern cultures, uh, indigenous cultures in particular, I mean, they have shamans who navigate not just the space between this human life and what lies beyond, but other realms. So they're more comfortable and able to, you know, they call it journey outside of their physical body. So, yes, answer to your first question is absolutely. You can't, can't um, deny that the evidence, the research suggests that there's a proclivity when you have one near-death experience or one shared experience to have more. The other piece about this is when we come back, the, uh, those of us who are experiencers, 
a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us feel like we came back with a mission. And, you know, mine was really teed up at 17 years old. Make something of your life. Now, I have to say, that, that tormented me for a lot of years. I, I tried to fit in uh, various times of my life and do conventional, meaningful work um, uh, in a way like, you know, just, you know, I, had a, I was very well trained in, um, to do group dynamics work and organizational development. I tried to do that, and it just, it's fine work when you're helping organizations, but it didn't have the spiritual, um, you know, essence in it that I really was looking for. And then when I met Raymond Moody in 2009, he was giving a talk. I thought he was going to give a talk on the near-death experience because I had, had two of those, and I was really interested in that. But he started giving a talk about the shared death experience because he said he had been receiving all these letters from people through the years saying, hey, I had this experience when my relative was dying, but I didn't have a brush with death. She died, but it's really similar to the near-death experience. So Raymond, you know, Dr. Moody took down all these, you know, all these cases and, you know, collected them. And then he realized after he had, you know, uh, I think he said he had like a few, many dozens of them. He found some patterns. And he is now, you know, he was the first person to coin the term the shared death experience in 2009. Well, he was coining it before then, but he wrote a book, Glimpses of Eternity, in 2009. Now, Raymond, he went, so when I'm talking to Raymond, he's talking about this, and I'm saying, I know, you know, I feel like I know a lot about this. I had multiple experiences. And look, cut to the chase here, he was, he and I was, you know, had been working together and, you know, staying in touch, and I started the research project. He's been very uh, supportive of that, and we're the first research project uh, in the world to really dive deeply into the shared death experience. Um, so, point being is, when I heard Raymond talk, it all, my whole body lit up. I had like a download of both information for how to um, do this research, how to start the project, and the idea for the what I now call the well I've always called them the protocols for how to enable a shared death experience. Because now people, you know, certainly locally in my community and now increasingly um, around the world actually will call me to say, listen, how can I? I have a relative who's who you know terminal diagnosis or getting close to death. Can you help me with the protocols to enable an SDE? And, you know, ideally we do it in a longer format in a program called the Pathways, which I train people in intensive workshops. Um, and, they're, you know, they're over just a weekend. And, but now, you know, I can do it in shorthand too. But the point being is when I heard Raymond's words, I saw my whole mission for this life unfold for me in chapters, like this piece, that piece, that piece. And I have just been you know, pursuing it and just going along. And I have to say, I get a ton of help. I work extremely hard at what I do here. And, um, and, you know, I have a team that we work with. But, you know, this is the first time a study of the shared death experiences has been done. And all the programs we run are also uh, pioneering programs. Thankfully, they've, they've all been well-received. And it's extremely meaningful work for me. But to go to your question directly, you know, I, like your guest yes, yesterday, Nancy, are in agreement that we have these missions and we're living them out. And 
at this point, it's kind of non-negotiable. And it's not like I'm particularly, um, you know, happy to be here doing my mission. I'm content doing it, but I'm also aware that this is a temporary existence I'm in, and the larger reality is that reality that of the, you know, call it loosely the afterlife, what comes after this. That's ultimately what I feel is my, and all of our kind of, you know, the, the terminology that's is a, a bit clunky, that's our but home. true home. That's our home. Yeah. Yeah, that's our yeah, home, the home exactly. where our soul lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Wait, at 17, were you connected to spirit at all, or was this a very foreign concept to you? Oh, beautiful question. I wish I could answer that, like, with <clears throat> certitude. My sense was that, well, let me do this. When I was, like, Three, four, five—well, maybe a little bit old. Five, six, seven, eight years old. I, I would get in trouble. Um, I was a pretty rambunctious kid. I, had, you know, had um, attention deficit disorder. You know, I was that kid who just couldn't sit still in class. And then, you know, I'd get in trouble at school and get in trouble with my parents and whatever. And and oftentimes I would get sent to my room, and I would lay down on my bed and I would look up and I had this mobile of ships and planes that would circle above my bed and I would find myself talking to God. I grew up Catholic. Talking to this white-haired, gray, you know, elderly, vast, big, huge, powerful being, kind but powerful, and and I would sail out on one of these boats in my own mind and I'd go into like a dream state. And I would keep going to the edges of the universe. Why? Because I wanted to get away from my life. Mm-hmm. I said, I want to go, God, I don't want to be here. It's too hard for me here. And I would sail out in my mind. And then I'd have this process I'd go through. Well, how far and vast is this universe? Well, I know that God created it all. And then I have this philosophical, deeply philosophical questioning. Well, what? who made God? Like, what if I get to the edge of the universe? Is God still there? Like, is there an edge to the universe? And if God created everything, who created God? And that was a bit of a scary question for me. And so when you ask, was I spiritual? I had these deep philosophical, spiritual, if you define kind of spirituality as part of like, what is your relationship to yourself, to your world, to the universe, um, and to greater, you know, to the divine, I was deeply spiritual. Oh, uh, I would that say way. you were. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I would absolutely agree because that's not yeah. something but, that the average um, teenager <laughs> uh, is pondering. Yes, you're right. I don't think that is. I mean, I was young as a child, and I, st- I gave that up, I think, when I got into adolescence, that type of trying to get away um, and, and asking those questions. To- what were you trying to get away from? Was it just that the world felt dense, or did you have a difficult family situation? Um, um, I, I, fa- I think I, I found my family was stressful. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like a, an abusive family. It was, I mean, if you really want to, if I were to put it into the most simple terms, I think I... I found being in a human body, the human experience, to be old and tiring to me. Like, and that, made se- that makes sense to me now as I realize I came into this incarnation 
with a specific purpose that is that I the reason why I think perhaps I had the near death experience was to reorient me and to remind me like hey you didn't come in here to do it the way everyone else does you've got a mission get about it um, <laughs> and, and, it, and in that way it it worked it sure it took 20 years you know for me to find that path after the NDE more than 20 years but mm-hmm. um, I I think I just you know I'm very in a certain way I mean I have a Buddhist practice have had one since the late 90s and I came to the Buddhist practice not for enlightenment I came because I was suffering from a spinal injury I had Lyme's disease my health was crashing I was in a great deal of pain and I and I wasn't getting a lot of um, relief from my other spiritual practices so I went into Buddhism because it really had it really addressed this question like you know, it said, hey, this life has suffering. Well, I'm like, well, boy, I know that one. If you can help me with that, <laughs> that's the first noble truth in Buddhism, this life has suffering. And the second noble truth is, you know, there's, it explains why it has suffering. And then, then the, the third one is there's a path. There's a way to get through it. And so I learned these mindfulness practices and went on a lot of long retreats. I mean, 90 days in silence and, you know, really, really got to sense and feel both my physical suffering and my relationship to it mentally and emotionally and affectively. So I did all of that um, as a way of trying to cope with my pain. But the point, the reason I bring up the Buddhist practices is that I, I, I think in some ways I'm acutely sensitive to the inherent struggles and pain of the human existence. I am not deluded about being here, in large part because I have such uh, an awareness and direct experience of what lies beyond here. Uh, And none of the creature comforts mean a whole lot to me here. I'm not like, you know, I don't find entertainment very interesting here. Um, I I mean, I find it being around death and dying and talking about these stories and working with my clients around these most profound experiences, that is the most meaningful, those are the most meaningful experiences and engagements I know of in, in this lifetime. Uh, there's others, of course, but, you know, watching movies and going out to restaurants and socializing. I mean, I have good friends. I love my friends. I love connecting with them, but I love connecting about things that really matter. <laughs> not interested in movies and reading the paper uh, and public affairs yeah. and politics. You know, the stuff that comes out as as newsworthy is really not that interesting to me. You know, that's really yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the clients that I work with um, who have gone through childhood narcissistic abuse, because that's specifically my focus. So that's where I, you know. There, I'm sure there are other situations, but every adult child of narcissistic abuse is an empath. And, and what you're saying is, a, is a, uh, one of the characteristics of being an empath, is that yeah. small talk is absolutely intolerable. Yeah. <laughs> um, and people say to me, I, you know, I don't know, there must be something wrong with me, but I can't stand you know, small talk. I'm like, I am the same way. I have to, I have to hang up the phone. I have to leave the room. It just gets to me at my core. So I just kind of laughed when you said that. Well, that's really well said, um, Randy, Mm -hmm. because I, I'm similar to that. And, you know, you asked a question about my family and uh, I do know your, your specialization expertise. And, you know, I would say that my father 
people who I did not have a good relationship with. He never he, – he was a very much a businessman. He was extremely successful in Silicon Valley. And I wouldn't call him a narcissist, but I would call him somebody who was very focused on his life and what he was doing. And he didn't have a lot of uh, patience for other ways of being in the world. He pretty much said the way to be in this world is you go out, you get a, you get a lucrative business career, and you live this way. Um, and, and he was very, um, you know, he's a benefactor of the Catholic Church. He's very involved in it. But he was very conservative, um, kind of an arch conservative. And there wasn't very much room for me. And so and I saw myself developing my empathic abilities, as you said, you know, quite uh, adroitly there, is that I developed them to survive. Like I yes. knew aspects of myself were not acceptable to my father. Yes, exactly. And so I had to hide them. I had to cultivate them elsewhere. I tried to stuff them. I tried to fit in, and I simply could not. And exactly. after a while, the tension between my father and I got so intense. You know, he said some things to me that were quite painful um, about my character and um, things like that. But I had to, you know, I, I, I saw him also as a man with his own upbringing. He lost his father at 13 years old, 15 years old, and really never got over the grief of that. He was a fear-based person. Um, and he, when you make decisions at 15 years old and you don't about what is a meaningful life and you had a powerful father who was a big businessman himself and you live the rest of your life trying to, to live up to your imagined um, um, perception of what it would be to satisfy your now deceased father, when you make those decisions at 15, 16, 17 years old and you don't evolve out of them, I think, I think my father is a very natural um, developmental result of that. So I have compassion for him because he didn't have the relationship that he could have had with his son like me who was more than willing and wanting a deep, loving relationship. We never shared that. I, I was never worthy of his love in that way. I mean, I think he wanted to love me. I saw him try and love me, but he just couldn't get by um, some of those developmental impediments. William, we need to talk more about this because you've just described someone with narcissistic personality disorder. You have just given me all the high points of a father really? who has this. Absolutely. So we need to talk um, <clears throat> after this so I can just, you know, sort of give you some more insight into that. <clears throat> but Well, thank you. You know, I'm a psychotherapist yeah. myself, and I do um, look at that, you know, familiar with the, uh, the characteristics of, of narcissism. But I will also say that I, being in that dynamic, I'm kind of laughing in my side. You know this so well, Randy. It's like when we're in that bubble, we're we're blinded to it. You know, it's like we're too close to make sense. But I can help others with their stuff, but my own stuff can be overwhelming to me. So I'm 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 appreciative of your feedback and insight about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, does that make sense? You know, we're too close to it. No, therapists come to me. And yeah. they come yeah, to me for help. Yeah, and they tell me 
I didn't learn any of this stuff, Randy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I completely, no, I completely understand. I, I think that the, um, the mental health community, the, you know, a psychiatrist, psychi- um, psychologists and so forth, mm. licensed um, social workers are completely out of touch in this area. Um, and it is very, very specific. So, but I, um, yeah, I really think that there's more going on than you absolutely realize. So if you want to talk to me, um, you know, you can always email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com with your phone number, and I'll call you back. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> back to the... Um, um, yeah, back to the shared death experiences. All right. Um, you were talking initially, um, you said you would give us the features of the experience. And when you say that, you mean, um, you know, the seeing the light, the things that Raymond Moody, by the way, to my listeners, if you don't know who Raymond Moody is, Raymond Moody was the first uh, researcher in the field of near-death experiences, and he researched thousands of people. And he is the one; he's the father of near-death experiences. He is the man. So the fact that you got to work with him, William, is uh, really, really—you must have been so honored. Oh yeah, I mean, well, well it, it, absolutely. And Raymond, uh, when I met him, he was. You know, he wrote uh, Life After Life, the seminal book that you're referring to in the mid-'70s. And then he wrote, you know, he wrote a number of other books. But then in 2009-10, he published uh, Glimpses of Eternity on the Shared Death Experience. But by that time, by his own admission, he wasn't interested in doing the research um, on it. He knew it existed. He just was, you know, he's more of a philosopher by nature, and he loves other pursuits, if you will. But he had the data. And so when I came to him and I said, I really want to research this, he goes, well, great. I, I'm, I'm more than happy to help you in whatever way I can. And, and so we you know, developed this relationship. And it's not like we had a tremendous amount of contact, but we have through the years. I've, we've talked and I've visited him and we've talked about this. And like I said, so, um, but he's a lovely, lovely human being. And, um, you know, just you know, he's just he's just a great person and, and and wise beyond what wisdom is. You you know, he's far surpassed our typical assessments for wise people. He's kind of mm-hmm. lives halfway between this existence and what and what is coming next. So uh, yes, blessed to work with Raymond. And you had something else. Uh, Randy, the features. Let me just tell your viewers about this. This is really important because the most dominant feature we see in the shared death experience is uh, the caregiver loved one expressing that they see, they see the dying in this transition. So they actually watch their departing loved one go through this journey into a benevolent afterlife. And in some cases, they see them disappear into Mm -hmm. the light. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And that's over half of our cases. Now, there's another feature that's profound, and that is we see this in 16% of our cases, and that is they'll see a kind of an elevated non-human being that can be described as an angel or a being of light 
or um, some sort of entity that's guiding this process in a certain way, uh, some elevated being, and that is usually very affirming to them. And there is one aspect that I really am fascinated by, and it's this 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 presence that can be seen as a being, if you will, but it doesn't have to be seen, but it's sensed. Like you sense that there's some force, some guiding um, energy that is enabling or facilitating this transition, this great movement of soul spirit from within the human body into the next dimension in the afterlife. And I have called this presence the conductor because I've seen it myself. I just my father died a year and a half ago, and I and I sensed and felt the conductor. And I was like, when I felt, it, I go, oh my gosh, that's the conductor, and it really resonated and pulled on my heart. I could see all the the you know all the kind of the energetic movements and force that was being um, core, not, was was being uh, managed, if you will, by this conductor. Uh, so you know, in the book, you'll see me. I have some examples towards the end of the conductor. Um, but the, so those are some some of the kind of features and entities and characteristics. And there's one other one: that's deceased relatives. People will see departed relatives. They'll hear their voices. They'll see them physically. They'll even smell them. So, uh, and that's very affirming. I mean. The main thing, I mean, there's all, the features are very similar to the near-death experience, but I would not be interested in this experience, but for this primary reason. I, like you, Randy, work with people to help them make sense of their life, to help them relieve suffering. I work in end of life. I work in grief and bereavement. I see a tremendous amount of suffering when we lose loved ones. The reason I'm so interested in the NDE, the SDE is because when you have an SDE, you, the, we see this in the research as, in this way. Experiencers come back and report, I know my departed loved one is alive and well in a benevolent afterlife. I know that I will see them again. I have no longer have any fear of death or dying. I realize my life has a purpose that I had not realized before, and I am now living into that purpose. I real, my grief is much better than my uh, contemporaries because I feel like, although I miss that person, that's just, you know we're always going to miss people. That's a natural uh, response, but it's held in a in a deeper, more meaningful context of realizing this is a natural part of life and I'll see this person again. And people have realized they developed some of these intuitive psychic you know, gifts that they're really grateful for. They see life differently and they're able to connect with people more deeply. They have more empathy and they have a greater understanding of life in general. They feel more alive and more vibrant. So these are the uh, results of a shared death experience, and they're borne out over and over again in our research. So this is why I'm most interested in it, is I want people to realize these experiences happen. They're healthy. They happen in, in, in normal 
people all the time and their gifts, their profound gifts. And, I, and I, you know, my research has now, uh, and, and that of my research team, has been published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. So this is critical as a foundational piece. And, the, and these uh, peer reviewers were thankful that I was able to connect, collect and document and analyze enough cases to validate this experience because we know, all of us who work in hospice know these experiences happen, but for some reason no one had really ever been able to gather up enough cases or whatever, but mm-hmm. now it's done. Now the foundational yeah. research is in the canon and we can refer to it. We can no longer say that these are grief hallucinations, that these are delusional events at the time of death. No, not at all. These are real experiences that we need to incorporate, not just in healthcare and end-of-life care, but into our very preparation for end-of-life and in conversations with our loved ones right now. All your listeners have asked me what to do. I would say go and talk to your closest friends about these experiences. Learn about them. And you'll find that a lot of people have had them, and they just didn't, never knew that they had them or knew how to talk about them. And, and then the next step is to talk about, well, if this is the best we can do at the end of life, like this is a good death, start preparing for it and, and begin that process. Yeah, and I was actually going to say to the listeners, if, because there's a lot of listeners out there, if you have had an experience like this, um, please email at me at loveyourlife@randyfine.com, and I will um, I will send this send your information over to William Peters, and you know so that he can add it to his research. I appreciate that, Randy. Yeah, your you know your listeners can go directly to you, or they can just go to sharecrossing.com, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of resources there for people okay. to if they're thinking like. Well, I don't know if I had this or not. Well, you can go to our website and you can see there's the shared death experience, there's shared crossing experiences, which is a series of end-of-life experiences, which I've identified as well and put in a real user-friendly continuum of end-of-life experiences, which include things like pre-death premonitions, uh, pre-death visions and visitations, post-death visions and visitations, synchronicities. I get all sorts of emails and calls from people saying, you know, I have this synchronicity that keeps happening. Every time I, you know, am asking a profound question and I'm asking for help or I don't know what to do, all of a sudden I see on my digital clock the anniversary of my relationship with my now deceased husband. It comes up, you know. The date Uh of our marriage always comes up or his birth date. Or it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I can't make this stuff up, you know. And so these are synchronicities that originally as a researcher I thought are just absolutely crazy, but then I I have them myself. You mean lights flicker, you know, if we believe that what's happening is that, you know, disincarnate spirits can can, uh, work energetically. So they work with lights and energy and you know, clocks, digital clocks, and all sorts mm-hmm. of things that have energetic bases in them. But, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a scientist with this stuff, but it, it, the probability of this is far beyond coincidence. I mean, this is just doesn't, you know, and we've run the numbers on it to see that, oh, my gosh, no, this, there's something profound coming, going on here. So, mm-hmm. But your, your, li- your listeners can go to our website, and I think, and, and they can share mm-hmm. their cases. They can submit them there as well, oh, and my team will read them over. 
and likely get back to you. But the other pieces, there are some videos there on our story library that you can watch of other people. They do not go into the depth that my book does. My book really, really lays out a typology. Um, you know, and you know this, Randy. I walk through it systematically, but always led by beautiful stories, 28 stories of ordinary people having extraordinary experiences. And you get that experience as a reader of seeing the pattern of the SDE revealed to you, and you get it in your bones. You're like, oh, my gosh. And a lot yeah. of readers have written me just in the last two days to say they read the book in one sitting, and they said, I, didn't, I was reading this because I heard about it, and I heard it was a good book. But I, when I read it, I realized I had one of these things. I had no idea. I had it when my grandmother died. And so, so I think mm -hmm. people will find that they're far more ubiquitous mm -hmm. than we know. Yes. The more, you, the more you talk about this, the more people are going to come, uh, realize yes. that, that, that they are part of this. Um, <clears throat> it is a fascinating, fascinating phenomenon. And... Um, I thank you for sharing that with us today. It, you know, it, it does. I mean, I know, I so believe in the afterlife. I so um, know that I have a home. I so feel dense here, <laughs> you know, so um, <clears throat> I have no fear of death. Um, but I would imagine that, you know, when a loved one does leave physically, it can be, you know, difficult to not have them accessible to you. But the truth is that we will all be together again and that there is another life uh, that, well, not another life. There is our really our soul life, which is eternal um, when we leave this temporary school. And that's really what it is. It's a school of learning. So uh, thank you, William. And thank you for your book at heaven's door. And um, I guess you probably have links from your website too, and we can probably get this at um, Amazon and any place else. Yes, I mean, fortunately, uh, my publisher is Simon and Schuster, and so the book is available anywhere books are sold. And but I always encourage people if you can help the the independent, you know, local bookstores because during COVID they've really <laughs> suffered a good deal, and the, you know we we want to keep that service alive. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great thing. And and congratulations on this um on this book deal from Simon and Schuster. I know that's a, not an easy thing to get. So, but your book is worth it. I get it. I understand why they why they decided to publish you. It's very very good. I I have books out too. So, I I understand the process. Anyway, um thank you. Uh, thank you again. William. And um, like I said, if you want to know more about your family, I will be happy to talk to you. So, um, Thank you, Randy. Yeah. yeah, thank you for your insights. And it's such a, it's an honor to be on your program. I've listened to your show. And so I, I love your guests and the way you engage them. Um, so it's, it's an honor for me to have been here with you this morning. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Okay. Well, have a great day, and um, perhaps I'll hear from you, okay? Wonderful. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com. And be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. 
Thank you for listening.